Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is an important week. It's the 120th anniversary of the start of the Anglo-Boer War, which formally began in October 1899. And this week saw the Anglo-Boer War Museum in Bloemfontein host a conference as part of the commemorations. Amongst the topics were how all communities were affected by this war, and those attending included both professional and amateur historians. On Saturday the 12th of October, a monument to Australian forces was unveiled at the battle site of Driefontein. If you want more details about this museum and the conference, head off to the website wmbr.org.za. That's whiskeymikebravoromeo.org.za. But back to October in 1901. It's been an extremely busy past few weeks for both Boer and Britain in South Africa. And in England, as we heard last week, where Churchill and the Conservative Party backbenchers had begun to criticise British Army tactics. General Jan Smuts was beginning to cause serious consternation in the Cape, while General Louis Boerter had found it impossible to continue his attack on Natal. However, Boerter's actions were proving to be a thorn in the side of Kitchener's army. The British commander was forced to send 40,000 men in various units to try and surround and capture the Transvaal Boer commander. This weakened other areas, and the number of guerrilla attacks on railway lines and other infrastructure began to increase. Smuts, meanwhile, was trying to stimulate the Cape Afrikaners into rebellion by showing them how weak the English could be. This did not turn out as planned, although he was still determined to create a gap into which General de la Rey was supposed to pour with a much larger commander in a month or so. The timing was unclear because Smuts still had not succeeded in his mission. But first, there was a food poisoning incident involving what is called Hottentot's bread, and it almost proved the undoing of all who ate this remarkable plant. Its scientific name is Dioscoria elephantipes, or elephant's foot. It is one of the most beautiful, weird, and wonderful cordiciform plants in the world, and has a deeply fissured surface resembling an elephant's foot, thus its name. It is also one of those plants you cannot ignore, and indeed, Jan Smuts and his men made the almost fatal mistake regarding it as a source of nourishment. With correct preparation, this is an edible plant. Prepare it incorrectly, and it's almost as dangerous as the Japanese pufferfish. Hottentot's bread, aka elephant's foot, grows in the area into which Smuts and his commando rode in early October around Graf Renet, Willemore and Uniondale. It grows nowhere else in the world. An amazing plant, it takes more than five years to produce its leathery fissured tuber that sticks out of the ground and then lives for another 70 years, mainly in the Karoo wilderness. I'll return to the bread that was also afoot in a while. We rode out of the mountain country into the open plains of the Karoo, writes Denise Rates, who was part of the Smuts Commando. His observations about the plant and what happened to his fellow burghers will be illuminating. In a chapter of his autobiography that he calls Moss Trooping, he says, We were now slowly marauding southwards. They were riding almost arrogantly in full view during the day in the open plains of the semi-desert known as the Karoo. For those who do not know this region, let me just say you have to visit. It's achingly beautiful, the air is clear, the sky a vivid blue, it's sparsely populated. The Karoo is mostly around 200 million years old, although parts are both younger and older, and dotted with flat-topped dolerite hills and places. So Rates was part of the Rake section, the advance guard of scouts, who ranged far and wide in order to spot possible targets and to keep the commander out of trouble. 
The Dutch-speaking population entertained both the scouts and the commando as they passed in a southerly direction, heading towards Port Elizabeth in the Algoa Bay. The English farmers on the way tolerated this group too. Although obviously passed on information to the British as soon as they had left, this did not seem to worry Smuts. In our fine khaki tunics and our well-found horses, our parents had undergone such a transformation that when asked at the English farmhouses who we were, our stock witticism was to say that we were English-killing dragons. They were having a jolly old time, and yet a hint of real danger emerged at this point. The commander had dressed themselves in British uniforms. In modern war, if you are caught in the enemy uniform, you are presumed to be a spy, and the rules of war say you can be shot. But in the Anglo-Boer War, at least according to Rates, his fellow burghers claimed they did not know this. The entire commander was now dressed almost exactly like the English army, and many would pay for this with their lives. The weather had now improved. The winter was gone. Days were sunny and warm. After their dreadful experiences on the mountains of the Storenbach, the big rain and the sleet only a fortnight before, they were now warmed by the rays of the sun and by their recent success at Ilansport, or Modefontein, as the Boers called the battle against the 17th Lancers. Field Cornet Boerter, not to be confused with Louis Boerter, then rode up to Smuts's commando one day in early October, along with 25 men. This was the remnant of a far larger band of Boers who'd been hiding in the mountains until they heard that Jan Smuts had arrived in the Cape. That bolstered their numbers. But the wounded Boers who had travelled all the way from the clash with the 17th were suffering. One by the name of Robenheimer had had his thighs smashed by a bullet and could travel no more. While another who was called Cohen suffered from gangrene in his wound and was also left behind. Cohen, whose first name we don't know, is particularly interesting. He was captured a short while later by the British, and an officer asked him why he fought for the Boers. He was both Jewish and an Eightlander, originally from England. He said he was fighting for what he called the franchise. That was a mischievous way of saying he believed he'd invested in a better side. The English were bemused. Another member of the Reich section, Jakubus Bosman, was suffering from what looked like malaria. Rates and he had travelled all the way through the Free State, and Bosman had refused to turn back when many others had given up. He gamely tried to keep up with the commander, but eventually was left delirious at a farm still dressed in an English cavalry outfit. And that was where the British found him. And this is where the Boers began to learn just how dangerous it was for a Boer to wear British army uniforms. Bosman was charged with high treason three weeks later and hanged as a rebel at Graf Reinet. This was part of General French and Haig's plan, along with Kitchener. The stick approach was being used to convince the Boers that it was fatal to continue fighting, and even more fatal to fight dressed in a British uniform. He was the first of our Reich section men to meet a humiliating death by execution, but not the last, for three more were destined to stand before a firing party and also other members of the commando, says Wright ominously. By mid-October, General Smuts and his commando were in the Bedford area, that is close to towns like Grahamstown, where the English settlers first arrived 80 years before and was symbolically important to the empire. The English forces were scouring the landscape, trying to trap Smuts, but each time they came close, he made his escape. It was over the Bedford mountains that he led his men, walking their horses in the difficult tracks and down the southeast side. From here was a glorious view across deep mountain valleys and green uplands 
of one of the loveliest and most fertile parts of South Africa, said Rates. And as we know, when the landscape is at its most beautiful, it is also at its most dangerous. Soon they arrived at the great Winterberg range of mountains. We halted at sunset amid gorgeous forest-covered steeps where we built huge log fires and spent a comfortable night, greatly taken with the fine country we had reached. They were now riding into a forested region and were hidden from view the next day as they proceeded in a southerly direction. For at least one of the Boers it would be the last time they enjoyed the forest's beauty. In the morning they had halted at a picturesque glade where a woodsman in a log cabin told them of a tavern and trading station at the foot of a pass close by. Needless to say, the idea of a trading station and tavern sounded good even to the highly disciplined General Jan Smuts. It was sunset by the time the commander rode up to the substantial wayside inn which was flanked by well-stocked warehouses. So little were we expected in this remote part that no effort had been made to remove the goods to the protection of the nearest military post, which was generally done when we were approaching. Rates and his friends made merry, commandeering, or let's call it looting, as much as they could carry. However, for a member of the rake section, it would be his last hurrah. There was plenty of beer and spirits at the inn, and although few of the men had tasted liquor for a year or more, there was no drunkenness, claims Rates. Except for the unfortunate Piet de Reit, who had come to fight for the Boers from the Netherlands. Piet de Reit collapsed in a drunken stupor and fell asleep in one of the warehouses, unseen. That was deeply unlucky, because the commando rode off not realising he was absent. It was weeks later that Reitz and his friends discovered what eventually happened to de Reit. He had been discovered in a room, and as like most of us, he was dressed in a British uniform. The poor fellow was executed, in all probability, before his fuddled brain had time to take in what was happening. It was only now that it dawned on the commander that being dressed in British uniforms was perhaps not the best idea. Rates was wearing a cavalry commander's breeches, courtesy of Lord Vivian, as well as his hat and other items of clothing. A day later they reached the Great Fish River, and although the dates are hazy, it was mid-October. They crossed the river at a ford and then passed over a railway line near Komodaka Station. It was the main line to the important harbour town of Port Elizabeth, and the sun was setting when they had completed the crossing. There were no blockhouses in this region, so moving across railway lines was comparatively easy compared to the difficulties in the Free State and Transvaal. There, General Smuts ordered the men to dismount and settle down for the night at a farmhouse around 600 yards beyond the railway line. They had only just turned their horses out to graze when an armoured train came puffing up, the beams of its powerful searchlights sweeping the felt. But as we lay in the fold on the ground, the crew could not see us, although they must have suspected our presence, for they sent a number of shells howling into the night, only one of which came within measurable distance of us. It was a day later that the commander crested a rise on the Seerbergen range of mountains, which is the last great escarpment before the country drops away to the sea. General Smuts had made it. We were now within 50 miles of Algoa Bay. I do not know what General Smuts' intentions were at any stage of our expedition, for he was a silent man, but I think that at this particular juncture he was contemplating a sudden raid on Port Elizabeth. What an idea! To attack one of the largest British ports in the Cape could have set off the hopes for an Afrikaner rebellion, 
it would definitely have been a major blow to English morale. The next morning, though, over 3,000 British troops could be seen advancing towards them at the foot of the Zierbergen Mountains. The troops had arrived on the armoured train and were tracking the Boers. Smuts ordered a retreat back to the top of the Zierbergen, and when the men looked eastwards, their escape route, they were crestfallen. From the point where we reached the top, we looked on a world of more mountains, line upon line of high ranges, each separated from the next by deep wooded gorges, and the prospect of being driven into these fastnesses was not inviting. But they had no choice. The 3,000-strong British force was advancing. So it was into this fastness that Smuts's commando descended. Rates spotted a young herd boy who told him that the British were holding 500 horses in a gorge nearby. He and Jack Boreas decided to take a look and eventually found an abandoned farmhouse and signs that a large number of horses had been corralled in the wooded valley. An Isitkosa man emerged and told them the British had driven the horses away only that morning, so they decided to rest for the night and then join the commander the next day. But some hours later, they were awoken by the sounds of boers nearby and of rifle fire. It was clear that the commander was fighting, and at first light they caught sight of the boers against the side of the mountain, crawling like ants to escape the British column which had caught up to smuts. They were miles off, but we could see that all was not well with them, for they were strung out in a disorderly line, and the firing was coming from an enemy force somewhere out of view. The British were now armed with machine guns and even a field piece, a light artillery five-pounder, which they somehow had dragged up the sides of the mountain. One Boer was wounded in the face, a few horses were killed, but somehow Smuts and his men escaped in the thick bush. However, the possible entry into Port Elizabeth had been dealt a blow. Worse, they were now short of food once more, and this led to the terrible decision to take an interest in Hottentot's bread. It is edible only at certain seasons of the year, but coming from the north, we did not know this, and as one of the men sampled it and found it to his liking, many unfortunately followed suit. Rates was not one of these. He didn't have time and rushed back to the firing line in case the British decided to try and attack through the deep gorge that separated the two armies. A while later, Rates made his way back to where Smuts had been to check on his horse, and he was shocked by what he saw. More than half our men groaning and retching on the ground in agony, some apparently at their last gasp. The poison in the bread was going to work. General Smuts was worse than the rest, so with half our number out of action, we were also leaderless, for he was lying comatose. As though they knew, the British then began to charge down the ravine on the opposite side of the valley and move towards the Boer side. They had now reached the bottom of the kloof, and some of them, leaving their horses behind, were already swarming up, firing as they came. Commandant van Deventer, the second in command, was also writhing around in pain. There was no commander, so Ben Bouvet, who was also sick from eating the poisonous plant, managed to order every man who could hold a rifle to extend in a line along the top of their position, and they opened fire. It was almost sunset, and in the poor light the Boers did not hit many British troops. But it did cause the attack to falter, and the darkness unnerved the attacking English troops, who then retreated back to their side of the mountain. Soon campfires could be seen on the English side. It was a temporary truce. In the silence, Rates hurried back to Smuts and discovered to his horror that all the sick men were in a worse condition. 
General Smuts was very bad indeed, and Van Deventer not much better. From the groans and cries on all sides, it was clear that the sufferers could not travel, and there was nothing to do but wait. In normal conditions, the Boers would have sprung on their horses and ridden away, putting as many miles as possible between themselves and the British, but this was a different night. As though experiencing a miracle, slowly, through the night, one sick man after another staggered to their feet, and by dawn, only twenty were unable to stand. Unfortunately, one of these was their commander, Smuts. The sick were then tied to their saddles, and the commander rode off slowly, following a game trail in the dense forest. The British, meanwhile, had also managed a miracle. They had dragged their field cannon up the opposite side of the mountain and opened fire on the Boers, who were visible on the opposite slopes. Worse, Race could see a handful of English scouts who had spotted Smuts, who was being lifted onto his horse by four men, so he rushed back to help, firing on the scouts who scattered. And so it was then that Smuts and his men survived an attempt at reaching Algoa Bay, but only by the skin of their teeth. Smuts was still unable to ride unaided, along with around a dozen other Boers, but they were free. What hope did this small group have of delivering on the major strategy 200 men surrounded by thousands of British troops? And they had been turned into fugitives now lurking in the dark gorges and forests of the Winterberg mountain range. Join me next week to find out what happens. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and post a review if you can. And thanks to Samuel, who once again supported this podcast. Thank you so much. And to Melissa of Book Cougars in Connecticut. Thanks for the shout out. And to Gustav, thank you again for the notes of support over the past year. So until next week, goodbye. Een zonder gedaan langs die mooie rivierse val, het zeevoeroorlogsdagen bleef. Hoe breng mij terug naar die Oud-Ransval, daar waar mij zaal.